0: Well, the rest of us, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 4. That's printed in your bulletin, or you can look at it in your Bible, or you can look at it on your phone. And I'm going to be reading to us starting at verse 4 of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one, no, not another to lift him up. Again, if two lay together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two who stay with, will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move under the sun, along with the youth who would stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after wind. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you this morning. We need your Holy Spirit this morning. There's so many distractions, so many things that are vying for our attention. This passage is difficult, but you have something for us here. You don't want us to leave this place without being transformed. So we need your Holy Spirit to do that. We don't seek to live above your word or beside your word. We want to live under your word. And we want your word to transform us. So Lord, we pray these things knowing that you are faithful to do it. Amen. In a few weeks from now, uh, Mitchell Case, which I, I don't know if you've ever met Ket Mitchell. He's usually at the second service. He's not here today. He's a young man in a wheelchair. Um, Mike Sanders, uh, who's getting his PhD in child psychology. Dave Borch, who's an elder here, and myself. We're going to be teaching a Sunday school class on disability and the church. As I've been thinking about this topic and discussing it with these men, we've been, uh, been reading uh, books, and one book that's been super helpful to me is a lady by the name of Stephanie Hubach. Stephanie actually has a connection with this church. She used to come to this church many years ago. And Stephanie is the mother of a child who has a disability. And she has really helped me think through a biblical worldview of disability. She lays it out in three different worldviews of disability. The first is a historical view, which is disability is abnormal in a normal world. The second is a postmodern worldview which is disability is normal in a normal world. And then a biblical worldview, which disability is normal in an abnormal world. And as I was thinking about that, that goes for all brokenness. All brokenness we experience in this world is normal in an abnormal world. I think that's what Ecclesiastes is really all about. I think he keeps saying that over and over again. What do you expect? What are you expecting from this world? He goes through wisdom and says, wisdom is broken. Riches are broken. Earthly pleasure is broken. Because this world is broken. And it begs that question that I asked a few weeks ago if everything we are trying to seek out in this world only gives us brokenness, then maybe we were not made for this world. Today, the professor is going to talk about brokenness in relationships. And I have to be honest, this is a hard week for me as I thought about that. As I thought about that it is normal in an abnormal world to experience broken relationships. Relationships are hard, and we should expect them to be hard because it's a normal part of living in an abnormal world. And frankly, when you come up against these broken relationships that we're gonna talk about in a few moments, that's a good thing because it reminds you that you need grace and mercy, and divine intervention. It means that we need a divine love, an otherly kind of love, because this world is broken, and its broken relationships remind us that we were not made for this world. It also stirs us up, and this is my hope, that it stirs us up as a church. Pastor Dan said at the beginning, we are not a church of individuals. We are a church that have been bound together by Christ. And we are growing, it says in Ephesians, into his head, into who he is. And that means that in this passage, we're gonna come face to face with broken relationships that need to look different within the church. In fact, I'm gonna give you the last point of my sermon right now. The world needs more churches. Now, many of you are like, oh, man, that's that's a dream sermon. I'm out of here. That's great. That was your last point. I've got a lot of other things I want to say. But that's my point. In a world that is so broken and has so many broken relationships, the world needs more churches, churches that promote, build, and are serious about Jesus-filled relationships. So, Let's look at this passage. Let's see what the professor is telling us about what we should expect from this broken world we live in. The professor keeps using this term, I see or I saw. The reason he says that is he's kind of surveying. He's not looking at anything specific, per se. He's talking about themes, themes of humanity. And as he looks at these different themes of humanity... He comes to relationships and the themes about relationships. Pastor Dan last week started us off in in the beginning of four, where he talked about oppressive relationships, that where power dynamics seek to hurt and destroy and exploit others. This week we're gonna see three other marks of relationships. That one, they are frustrating. You can say amen after any of these. They are frustrating, they lead to loneliness. And there is a sense of disillusionment in relationships. So let's look at frustration. The professor observes here in, chapter, in verse 4, that I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This is relational. What motivates man is envy. As he looks around and he says, that's what I want. The professor observes that it is normal in an abnormal world for man to envy and for man to be envied. It is normal in this abnormal world that this envying of neighbor ruins relationships. Now, I don't want you to be shocked. Envy is a pretty hard word. In fact, out of all of the seven deadly sins, right, um, envy is the one that you can't virtueize. You can virtuize lust by calling it love. You can virtuize wrath by calling it righteous anger. But you can't virtuize envy. Envy is just envy. It's just jealousy. And you are jealous. In fact, it's at the core of your heart. You are a self-righteous, self-centered, self-promoting, envious jerk. And at this point, you say, hey, easy, Pastor. Pastor. I didn't come here to be insulted. Well, it's not an insult if it's true. <laughs> God calls it how it is. These words in Ecclesiastes that I've been sitting in all week, and I tell you this all the time, I sat in them all week so you get to sit in them for at least you know, a half an hour. These words are not a professor's words, they are God's words. They are God's words to this world and to his people. And he says, what's at the core of your issue? The core of your broken relationships is envy. And it's going to lead you to frustration. Relationships are frustrated because we are envious of each other. Envy is such an insidious part of our heart, isn't it? Starting at the very first real major story of characters in the Bible, you have envy. You have Adam wanting to be God. And then that kind of flows out into Cain and Abel, where Cain wants to be Abel. And then it flows out into Sarah and Hagar. Then it flows out into Joseph's brothers and Joseph. Then it flows out to Saul and David. Then it flows into Judas and Jesus. Envy, envy, envy. Wanting what is not ours. The Tenth Commandment, do not covet. When I teach the Ten Commandments to the kids in uh, Stepping Stones, the Tenth Commandment looks like this. Do not covet. Don't take things that aren't yours. But it's so much deeper than that, isn't it? Be satisfied with what you have. Ron Ziegler reminded us of this last night. But envy runs so deep in our hearts It is so many times, so difficult for us to even root out. This past week in our uh, small group, uh, Mike Sanders led us through Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But before he gets to the fruit of the Spirit, Paul talks about the works of the flesh. And these works are nasty. I mean, he's talking about sexual immorality and orgies and dissension and division. And then there, right in the middle of that list, is envy, and I think Paul does that on purpose because envy is at the core of your issue and my issue. It is at the core of our relational issues. Pam Reed at Small Group reminded me of a great illustration about envy from Veggie Tales, <laughs> Madam Blueberry. She's so blue, she's so blue, she doesn't know what to do. Because she is so steeped in envy. In fact, she's so envious that she's got pictures all around her house of her friend's stuff. Like her friend's bed or her friend's dishes. She just wants everything that her friends have. Madam Blueberry lives in a tree house and she realizes basically it's the equivalent of Amazon called Stuff Mart where you can order things online and get them delivered to her house. Immediately, she has all everything she needs and then subsequently, her house topples out of the tree because she has so much stuff. You know, it's childish, isn't it? But it's what happens to all of us. We envy. Maybe it's relational envy that is emotional envy or is I just want this other uh, person to like me or to respect me or to accept me. And all of a sudden, we are clamoring after all of these things and then it just ruins our home. Envy distorts everything and it leads to broken relationships as we watch our house crumble. So the professor says, well... There is a response to this envy, and it's to be a fool. So instead of running after whatever the rat race is of the next thing, keeping up with the Joneses or the Jonases is, whatever the next thing is, you can be a fool and fold your hands and say, mm not me. I'm not joining that rat race. That's what this guy does here. He folds his hands and says, I will not participate in this envy-seeking rat race of life. The professor says he is also running in vain. H.C. Leupold, who wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, is excellent. Um, I I find him to be very insightful. He says this, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And he actually says, verse 6, So imagine the fool saying this, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Here, this foolish man who thinks he is better than everyone else else, folds his hands and ends up devouring himself. You see, envy takes many different shapes. And it can even take the shape of being a virtuous, quiet man. But at the end of the day, he is still envious and still frustrated. Maybe the professor is, and verse 6, actually just giving us a really good proverb. It's better to have a handful of quietness. That means just live a quiet life than to be striving after keeping up with the Joneses. Well, you and I both know that that also ends in vanity because you know people that have been quiet in their life, been content with their life, and yet they still have frustration in their relationships. They still have frustration with their kids or with their spouse or with their neighbors. The point being this: envy is normal in an abnormal world. Frustration is normal in an abnormal world. He moves on to loneliness, verses 12 through seven through 12. He sees the loneliness that happens in relationships under the sun. He compares two people here. First, he talks about a man who has nobody, a man who is so self-absorbed in his life that he has no one to share all of his riches with. He is so busy building his kingdom that he doesn't even ask who he's working for or should he sacrifice anything. Self-absorption is normal in an abnormal world, and it leads to loneliness. I don't think I have to be like a great American cultural critic just to say, do you feel that loneliness? I mean, we have been so isolated over the last two years, but it's been for, for decades before that, we have become more individualized. So much so that in this room right now, where maybe there's 200 people, I'm sure some of you feel a profound loneliness. Our American culture is saturated with loneliness because it is self-absorbed. And sadly, church, so are you. Our church has taken on the the, um, culture in that way. It has leaked and leached into our church that we miss our calling as God's people that we are to live differently. The last couple of years, Pastor Ben has been um, putting out in January a list of books that he read the year before and then he gives a little synopsis. Super helpful, great books on that list. Encourage you to look at those and read those books. I don't do that, because if, if I did like a book review, it would have two books on it, and like one of them i had finished, and the other would have an asterisk, was like, almost done, <laughs> waiting for the movie. <laughs> but last year I actually read a book, and I finished it. And it was, no applause no for that, all right. Uh, and it was called uh, Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. And after reading that book, I fell in love with Wendell and, and his writing. And just recently, uh, in an article that was put out by The New Yorker, uh, he was characterized as a man who promotes neighborliness and compassion. When Wendell was younger, he did a fellowship in Stanford, and he studied with a man named Wallace Stegner. And Wallace is a kind of an American critic and also an American writer. And Wallace came up with two groups of people boomers and stickers. When he says boomers, he doesn't mean like, okay, boomer. But some of the characteristics are the same. He says this about boomers these are the people that pillage and run, who want to make a killing and end up on easy street. And then there's stickers, stickers are those who settle and love the life they have made and the place they have made it in. A boomer is motivated by greed, a desire for money and property and power. Stickers, on the contrary, are motivated by affection, by such love for a place and its life that they want to preserve it and remain in it. And Barry says this, and I want you to take this away. Stickers are a people. The professor is drawing a contrast here in verses 7 through 12 of boomers and stickers, people that are all about themselves. And then you have these two friends who are stickers. Two people who look out for each other, who seek to help each other, who long to serve one another, you can you can almost taste it in this passage, right? They're not lonely. They're lovely. And they want to be together. And they want to help one another. The professor is making a general statement about relationships. He's saying our normal tendency in this abnormal world is to be isolated. It's to go it alone. It's to be that first guy to be independent but that only leads to falling into pits or to being cold or to getting attacked. In fact, that is an age-old trick of the devil, to take stickers and move them to become boomers. Because we were created, remember, in the image of God, to have community with God and to have community with one another, and then we were a people placed in that Garden of Eden. But after the fall, after the relationship is broken with God and relationship is broken with each other, we are moving east of Eden, becoming a people isolated. The devil wants to move you right now, right in this very moment, away from each other. The devil wants you, your flesh wants you, the world wants you to be like, I need to get out of this church as soon as we're done. I don't want to stick around here. The devil, the flesh, the world wants to move you out of community, out of being vulnerable, out of this kind of friendship. So we have to think differently. How are we going to do that? How do we think differently? How do we become a friend that a a threefold cord is not quickly broken, how do we become this friend that helps the other out of the pit, that keeps the other person warm, that guards the other person from attack. As I've read this this week, Ecclesiastes, again, um, Philippians 2 comes to mind. And as I talk with some of my brothers and my friends here, Philippians 2 comes to their mind as well. Because Philippians 2 gives us a new mind. It gives us the mind of a sticker. Someone who loves to be in community. Because they know they were redeemed and saved to be in community. Philippians 2 talks about not doing things for selfish ambition, envy. Thinking of others more important than yourself. Having a mind that's different. And that mind is different because of Christ. And what he has done for us, because Christ is the one who was placed here for us, the one who came from his home to our home. Christ is the ultimate sticker, moved by affection, moved by love for us and for his father, and dwells with us, Emmanuel. Jesus, that's who we need to keep our eyes on in our relationships when they are lonely. And when they are frustrating, when we have the mind of Christ, we have a different view of friends. We are now a cord of three. We see it as necessary for this life because our natural bend is to be isolated and lonely. But with Christ, our bend becomes one where we are willing to step into community. The last thing he says here about relationships is found in 13 to 16 disillusionment. He sets out a story, which I don't think it's specific to a certain king and a certain young man. It could be. He could have Saul and Paul in mind. I don't know. But that's not really the point. The point is this. There is a disillusionment in relationships. This king has gone from a rags to riches story. And as he's gone from rags to riches, he becomes isolated he becomes a fool. And as the professor is watching him, he rises to the pinnacle of his career as king, and he has people worshiping him. And then in that group of people that are worshiping him and following him is the one who's going to take his place. There's a disillusionment in relationships, a disillusionment to think that relationships will last Forever, people come and people go. There's a futility of power and the disillusionment of man's praise when it comes to relationships. Both are fickle and, fle- and fleeting. Think about it. Jesus, the one, Hosanna, on the day he rolls into Jerusalem, five days later, crucify him. Relationships are fickle and fleeting. The disillusionment, In this relationship, the disillusionment for us in our relationships is that somehow we think our relationships will be different. Somehow we don't think that they will be frustrating or lonely. But frustration, loneliness, disillusionment is normal in an abnormal world. I love what Pastor Dan's been saying every time he preaches. He says... Ecclesiastes is not the end of the story. And that's good news for us. Because in this abnormal world, where it is normal to feel brokenness, we have an abnormal God who comes in. And you feel that, don't you? You feel like there has to be something more for me. There has to be something more than this broken relationship with my spouse or with my child, or with my neighbor, or with my coworker, or with my friend? Is there more than just people using one another to their end, or me using people for my end? As a church, we should be asking Is there more for us to offer this world? And the answer is yes, there's so much more, because we are a people placed. I love the phrase he uses here, I saw. The professor keeps saying, I saw, I see, I behold, because it echoes somewhere else in the Bible, Revelation, where John says, oh, I see, I behold, I saw. What is John looking at? John is looking at the reality of life under the S-O-N sun. Read with me. Here with me, these words from Revelation 7. We read them earlier. I want you to follow along with me because I don't know if you guys noticed, I noticed you got louder when you had to do the uh, responsive part, you got louder. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where did they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to them, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation.'" They were washed. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall not hunger, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God, God, will wipe away their tears. This is a people placed. How are we to live in light of what the prophet tells us? Living normal in an abnormal world means there will always be brokenness. But we are a people placed. This is who we are. A people on a mission. A people who are to worship. A people who are placed with a king and by a king. And because of that now, we can have the mind of the king. A mind that comes with thinking of others before ourselves who are to recognize that we are envious people. You know, that's the first thing we should be recognizing is our sin. We are the first who are envious. We are the first that are broken. We are the first that want to drift away and be lonely. We are the, one, we are the first that are disillusioned by our relationship. But Jesus has shown us the light of the gospel, the good news, that it's in him we can have a different mind. In him we we can move and have a new being. This means that we can move toward each other, especially in conflict. We can walk alongside each other, especially when times are tough. We can give generously, expecting nothing in return. We can be quick to give grace, and as Wendell Berry says we have a prepaid forgiveness that we are quick to give out because we are controlled by the love of Christ. My friends, that's why we need more churches. In the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear about this building in Bellefonte. I don't really care about that building. I care about a church. You're going to hear about presbyteries and and PCA churches and these things. We don't care about that. The leadership does not really care about those things. They are byproducts. What we care about are churches, people placed by God into communities to bring and proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ saves and makes everything different. This week, we don't do this at our church that much. We don't really celebrate Ash Wednesday. But this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And it reminds us, it reminds us that this world is broken. And it reminds us that we are ash and dust. It reminds us that brokenness is a normal part of an abnormal world. Ash Wednesday leads into Lent. A time of a lack of presence. Typically during Lent you give something up, right? It's usually like something that's not high stakes, like chocolate. But it's a lack of presence of something. A time where people abstain from something. This lack of presence reminds us that because of the cross, because of the veil that's been torn in that tabernacle, we are never without the presence of God. In this broken down world, where relationships are frustrating, where relationships are lonely, where relationships have so much disillusionment attached to them, you have a God who is with you. During this week, we are reminded that something is so desperately wrong, and yet God is with us, and he's making it all right. In a world where relationships are always frayed and broken and stressed and tense, we can move toward each other because we have a God who moved toward us. And that's what's so amazing about the church. The church is an embodiment of that. Where people from all walks of life, frustrated, lonely, and disillusioned, come together, hopefully, to encourage one another and to get a little taste of that Revelation 7 image. We need more churches to step into this. And don't pretend, but are real. Really messy, really broken, and really redeemed. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for not leaving us with just the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for showing us the futility in this life and putting all of our hope and our trust in this life. Thank you for showing us the futility of thinking that somehow relationships will somehow solve the deep problems we have. Thank you that our, in our relationships they are frustrating Thank you that in our relationships there is a sense of loneliness. Thank you that in our relationships there is a sense of disillusionment. Because when that happens, you step in. You show us. You tell us. You sing a song over us. That we are yours. You remind us of who we are and whose we are. Because of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you, thank you through your life and your death, through your resurrection and through your ascension, you showed us at every single part how you are the one that has made our relationship right with God the Father. And because of that, now we are never alone. Lord, as we step into this next week, lay people on our hearts where we need to move toward them. Put people on our hearts and in our minds that need a text or an email or a phone call or a visit. Lord, Start moving our church to become a church that seeks to love one another as you have loved us. And then this watching world will know that there's something different about us because of the love that we share. Because that love came from you. Thanks for loving us first. It's in your name we pray. Amen.